Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn how personal shame can be. How not to make empathy a tick box. And the trouble with screening questions. You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 33, Shame. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we talk about all the things you want to know to be a good doctor, but that you might not learn at medical school. I'm Anna, and I'm a final year medical student at King's, and also the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, for another few weeks at least. And I'm really pleased to be joined by our friends, Lily and Oki. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hiya, I'm Lily. Um, I have just finished intercalating and I will be going into my fourth year of medicine in September. Very exciting. Are you looking forward to going back? Um, <laughs> uh, not yet, but I'm sure I will be soon. Hello, hi, I'm Oki. I am a soon-to-be fourth-year medical student at the University of Dundee. And I start in July, and it's currently July, which oh. means I'm starting back soon, and I don't know how I feel about it. But, Will you yeah. be going back like into the actual like clinical environment, or is it all online stuff? Um, we are we have something called transition block for a month, which isn't necessarily like full full on placements. It's just kind of like clinical skills and like trial placement sort of thing and then after that month we're back on the wards and stuff exciting i'm really looking forward to to going back um to uni now and um hopefully getting to like actually talk to some people in real life um because i've been yeah basically um quite isolated since lockdown has started so yeah i'm really looking forward to that and I'm actually really, really thrilled. Um, I feel so lucky on this podcast that I've had the opportunity to actually talk to um, so many people whose work I have followed um, for quite a long time. Um, and so I'm absolutely delighted to introduce today's expert guest, Lucia. Hi, yes, uh, my name is Lucia Osborne Crowley. Um, I'm a writer and a journalist. And uh, a lot of my recent work has focused on shame and in particular um, shame and medicine. Uh, So I recently published a a series of reported essays about the way shame works and how it impacts us, um, which came out of a book I published last year called I Choose Elena, uh, which is also a lot about shame and uh, physical and mental illness. Uh, And then I have another book, um, also largely based around shame, which is coming out next year. Um, And I'm really, I'm so delighted to be here. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I first came across your work with the the six-part series you did for the Welcome Collection. And I mean, I really felt like some of the things that you spoke about crystallized for me like an uncomfortableness that I'd had but I hadn't really thought enough about or had the opportunity to put into words um so yeah it's so cool that you're here with us today to help us kind of unpack some of those things and and hopefully help 
not just us here who are in the quote-unquote room it's a it's a virtual room obviously um <laughs> but um all of our listeners as well who many of whom are will be healthcare professionals in training and and hopefully we can you know make some sort of grassroots changes to to the way that we approach shame as medical professionals so there's a few things I want to touch on today. I wanted to talk a little bit about how we experience shame as med students and how shame can sometimes be used as a learning tool for us. And then Lucia, with your help and with the help of the person that we've got a clip from, uh, we can also talk a little bit about how our shame as medical professionals impacts on our patients and what we can do to try and you know stop, stop that from happening. So first off, Lillian Oki, was it something that you guys worried about before you went to medical school like asking quote-unquote embarrassing questions questions that you maybe felt were shameful in a way um I kind of feel like I me and shame we've been on a journey so um so I'm catholic um so I know all about shame um joke (laughs) um (laughs) I think because I was reading um, your series of articles, Lucia, and before reading that, I would say I'm quite a... I would have said that currently, right now, I'm quite a shameless person. That's what I would have said, that I'm more than happy to embarrass myself and just do stupid things. But it was wasn't until I got to part four that really solidified my understanding of shame like it really it literally slapped me in the face because I remembered um I can't remember the specific scenario in your article but but it just reminded me of a communication skill session I had where I had to take a sexual history from a fake patient and it was honestly a car crash and usually I'm someone that's really quite open about talking about sex and any type of topics with my friends but when I was put in that situation the awkwardness and embarrassment just leaped out and I didn't know where it came from I didn't realize that I was actually this awkward about it and it wasn't even a real patient in the first place anyway so yeah that's my experience of shame as a medical student I didn't realize how embarrassed I was just talking about sex what about you Lily I don't I don't think I really had any idea of what medicine would be like before I applied I think the only doctors that I kind of knew properly existed were GPs for which I had only gone to the GP for like my asthma and then like surgeons I didn't really it didn't occur to me that doctors have to like ask a lot of questions about their patients so I wouldn't say I went into it and then I was shocked but I also didn't, wasn't like, oh yeah, absolutely, like, this is of course part of the job. But definitely in communication skills, like the idea, yeah, being hammered into me, like which questions were embarrassing to ask and which parts of a patient's lives would be like the parts that are like undesirable or like you don't want to talk about for too long. That was definitely an experience I had again like reading the essays that you wrote Lucia it like something resonates and reading them there is like a hum of like okay I recognize this but probably before I wouldn't have verbally said yeah I feel shame or experience or witness shaming yeah Mm. yeah that's something that I found with this topic is I actually find it quite difficult to verbalize my emotions and I think again that was part of the reason why when I read your articles I was like this is so amazing because it's really putting into words like 
something that I've felt but not really been able to talk about myself and I think as an aside this is the value of amazing journalism right um (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah I thought we could um just have a little chat about how shame is sometimes used in medicine as a teaching tool um so Lucia I don't know kind of how much you know about medical education and the way that we get taught um at med school but it's definitely something especially when I started going on to the wards people were always like oh you know watch out for that certain consultant he likes to you know embarrass you in front of everyone and you know I think there's a lot of you feel under quite a lot of pressure to know all of the answers and that's because you don't want to be shamed in front of like your peers and sometimes in front of patients I don't know if that's something that you guys have experienced as well Oki and Lily um definitely I I I can think of several (laughs) situations but I think I'm just one of those people I'm very comfortable with just saying I don't know something it kind of like brings like I think at the end of like one of your articles you said something about like um silence is the oxygen of shame and I just feel because I'm very comfortable saying I actually really don't know this then I feel less ashamed of not knowing it because it's kind of like taking that power away so if you ask me a really difficult difficult question and I don't know and I tell and I tell you I don't know it I already know that okay yes I need to go back home and do that bit of extra reading to top up my knowledge but I don't necessarily feel that bad about it should I be saying this on a podcast (laughs) (laughs) no no I think I mean it's your opinion and um you know we should be with kind of very free on this podcast to to say what we think and Lucia um what do you think about that well I was just um going to say that it's the kind of the opposite of something you shouldn't say on a podcast okay because it's what we're what we're saying about silence and things the more that we talk about these things the more we combat shame so it's actually the perfect kind of leading by example discussion to be having it's so refreshing to hear people in any profession be able to say you know, there are things that I don't know and, you know, I'll need to go home and check them. And you know, that's that's kind of chips away at that institutional culture of shaming. And I think all of this goes back to um, the idea of silence as well and just, just hearing your all of your reflections on what you felt shame about. Um, it really speaks to, I think, how destructive shame can be because it's it attaches to such different things for different people. So you can never know what another person will be will feel ashamed about or ashamed of um, because it depends uh, largely on what that person has been through, any trauma they've suffered. Any lived experience can feed into what triggers shame for you. So there's no specific content to shame. We can't kind of conclusively say these things will attached to shame and these things won't but the thing that draws it all together often um which I think was came out really in a really interesting way when you were all talking is is the idea of silence the thing that connects shame is that it's it's things that we are not don't feel able to talk about so even though the actual content is very different for us the thing that's the same and the thing that often helps us identify that something is shame rather than other emotions is that we feel unable to talk about them freely. So because that's such a fundamental part of 
the whole construct, it makes sense that that's the thing we need to attack if we want to try and break the construct apart, which is why it, it seems to me that silence is kind of the biggest the biggest way in to kind of breaking this down and, and, and creating a culture where we don't feel ashamed of any of the things that our own shame is triggered by. So I think the, um, the silence thing is, is really important and moving on to the kind of idea of shaming in medical teaching, it kind of all goes to the same point, which is that if you're in an environment where you've learned to feel ashamed of things you don't know or things you're not sure about, then you're, you're primed to feel shame in that practice and in that environment. So it all kind of feeds into the other things. And the, the thing about shame that makes it so different from other emotions is that it's an idea, it, it relies on the idea of an audience. It's being condemned by an audience be, uh, failing some important societal standards. And the impact of it is this overwhelming feeling rather than guilt, for example, in which with the, you know, example of if you're asked a question and you don't know the answer, you can say, I don't know the answer, I'll prepare better next time. That guilt is productive. It helps us kind of work towards a goal, whereas shame is not, you know, I didn't know the answer. Shame is I'm a bad doctor because I didn't know that answer. And if you have a culture of that, then it makes people afraid to be able to grow in the way that making mistakes allows you to. I think that's really, that's so true, what you say about shame being an intensely personal thing. And it comes, a lot of it is obviously around culture um, and people's personal experiences. Um, And I think, you know, when we're trying, when we're thinking about like ways you can, like mitigate the impact your own shame as a healthcare professional might have not just on your own well-being but in the way that you interact with not just patients but other other members of of the healthcare team it's really interesting because you it can be so difficult to like make those different things match up because everyone has such unique experiences and I think it's something that I mean, medicine has moved more and more towards like guidelines and, and things like that, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. And there's probably a, a bigger conversation to be had about like evidence and things like that. But there is sort of an element of like losing that individualization, I think. I don't know if that fits with you guys' experiences of um, learning how to practice medicine. Lily, you look very thoughtful. No, I was just trying to, I was just processing it very slowly, as I always do. So medicine has become less individualised as we've moved towards guidelines and flowcharts and things like that. Yeah, no, that is definitely true. And I guess, I guess when you lose the individualization and you are treating, you're trying to fit patients into a box, which again is not like... It's not always something that is awful and it's also not always doctor's fault. That is just how you have to work in a system. If you're having to fit a patient into a box to get the diagnosis or to get a certain test, that is going to breed silence because there is no room beyond those parameters and anything beyond that, anything that 
speaks to the messiness and sometimes the horror of human experience, if they fall beyond what it says on a flowchart, then they're not going to be spoken about and they're going to be ignored and then shame is going to be created and it makes patients feel like, oh, okay, so that thing, that's clearly not something I can talk about because they haven't asked me. They haven't asked me out of their list of things they have to ask. Yeah, no, I, that, I really resonate with that. I um, recently read some really, really interesting research about this exact issue and I think Lily's point is exactly right that it's it's not about individual doctors it's very much a structural problem which is that in a lot of um, major healthcare systems the move towards kind of a focus on data a focus on categories um, and systematizing everything which is very important in a large-scale institution um, but often it was part of the purpose was to to help doctors um disconnect emotionally from patients because that was seen to be a good thing and of course to some degree it is it is important um but it seems in some places it's been taken to an extreme where as you say Lily those there's such a heavy focus on categories and of cutting out our emotional responses to things that it leaves very little room for um, the information that we often that we need the most, which is the information that patients are ashamed of. So if you're focusing on ticking boxes and putting things into categories, uh, the thing you can miss is, for example, looking at a patient's face and being able to tell that there's something they're not saying. There's something they're afraid to say to you, or and m- maybe they get a their palms are sweating, maybe they're fidgeting, you know, these little things which aren't about necessarily about the medical condition, but they are about what they're hiding from you and why. Um, And to pick up on those things can sometimes be absolutely critical to getting to the the real problem. Um, And I think that's what's lost when we kind of take away from emotional engagement. There's a project called Shame in Medicine, um, which talks about the fact that that kind of emotional mirroring, the, the emotional engagement between doctor and patient that, that has been lost over the years um, is, is really important for getting the kind of key information um, and it actually helps doctors treat patients more effectively. Um, but we've come to think of it as weakness or becoming too involved or something when in fact it's quite an important part of being a good practitioner, I think. So I think there's a big structural bias towards not not being empathetically involved with patients. And that would make it really hard for individual doctors to, to try and do that when the whole system is pointing them away from that goal. Yeah, I think it was something that actually surprised me quite a lot and I think has taken me quite a long time to process. I mean, I came to medical school when I was 18 I'm a first in family medic, so I, none of my family are doctors or anything. So I wasn't really that kind of tuned in to the way doctors are kind of supposed to behave and how they're supposed to act. And being taught to disconnect myself emotionally so much from the people that I was interacting with, you know, in a kind of doctor patient scenario always felt really foreign to me and I always you know the feedback I always got and and still do get sometimes is you know you're not professional enough you're you know you're too informal and I do appreciate that a balance has to be struck there but I also feel like there is something really important about that connection between two people 
not a doctor and a patient, not someone who's in a position of authority and someone who is quote-unquote vulnerable, between two people who want to have an understanding that allows them to move forward in a constructive way. And I think, yeah, this emphasis on professionalism and, and distancing, which I think is still quite, or at least in my experience, has still been quite kind of heavily drummed into us I don't know I think it's time to have a conversation about how productive that is but like this conversation just makes me think about OSCEs in general gee I don't know if you know what OSCEs are so there they are uh, clinical skills exams and in some ways you can kind of like treat OSCEs as sort of like a tick box exercise so did I ask the patient the ideas concerns and expectations tick I did that um so I guess it, it kind of like encourages like that depersonalization because you're just kind of like going through your list of things you need to do to pass that particular exam station. But at the same time, I kind of feel lucky at my med school, number one in the country, um, <laughs> um, because they've kind of like re not that recently, but in the last couple of years, they, they've changed the way they assess the OSCEs. So rather than having like a list of things you need to do to pass the station, you're kind of given like a global rating. So like how safe were you? Um, how skillful were you? How accurate was your examination? What sort of rapport did you build with the patient? And that gives you your mark rather than did you cover these specific points in your um, exam? So I guess that kind of like remo removes the stress of having to just go through a tick box and just kind of like treating that patient in front of you as more of an individual. That's such an interesting example um, of the things that we were talking about. When I was reading, um, when I was researching for my book and the essays, um, one of the things that started me thinking about shame and my own uh, experience with medicine and, and disability and physical illness um, was uh, Leslie Jameson. She's a writer and a journalist. Her work about working as a medical actor and she was participating in, I imagine, an equivalent of OSCEs. So she was pretending to be a patient with particular symptoms and the doctor would um, have to try and diagnose the problem. Uh, and she had a checkbox and she had to assess them and just tick if they'd done certain things or not. And one of them is, it was the, right at the bottom of the list, um, expresses empathy for the patient's condition or suffering. Um, and it led into a really interesting um, kind of analysis of, of what that means because if you are expressing empathy in order to tick a box and pass an exam, that doesn't quite connect with, with what empathy is as an emotional experience because, and this comes back to the idea of um, emotional mirroring, which is about the kind of neurons in the brain that recognise that someone is paying attention to you and listening to you and reflecting your emotions back at you. So if someone's looking at their piece of paper while writing a prescription and says, oh, that sounds hard or something, without engaging with you, they'll tick the box. But the actual emotional mirroring, it's not happening. And the, the benefit of empathy in medicine is firstly, you know, to make the patient feel heard and cared for, but also not just in its own right, but as soon as you have made that connection, like you were saying, Anna, the idea of a connection between two people, once you have made that connection and once you as a patient feel like 
the doctor is connecting with you, they are more likely to be honest about what's happening to them because the space immediately feels safer to talk about things that are shameful. Um, whereas if you go in, I've had this experience a number of times, if you go in and you say something like, I'm in terrible pain or, you know, and explain what's happening and a doctor doesn't respond to the emotional content of that or say something like, that sounds quite distressing or, you know, then there's kind of a disjunct. It's not, it doesn't, it then doesn't flow like a normal conversation because some basic rules about human interaction have kind of been, been breached a little bit because when you say something very painful, you expect a response to that content. And if you don't get it, then the whole thing becomes a bit of a checkbox exercise. So that idea of expressing empathy in the consultation is not even just about that in itself, but it's about creating an entire relationship in which it's okay to talk about things and it's okay to be vulnerable, knowing that, that the person will reflect that back at you and will kind of hold that in a way that respects those feelings. And I think we find that super difficult in medicine, or at least this, I mean, this is obviously only from my experience, but I think there's this sort of overriding way that you're taught, like if you honestly and actually empathetically connect with a patient and feel the distress that they're going through, somehow you are firstly kind of breaching some sort of boundary that there should be between a doctor and a patient and that that's not okay and secondly that in some way that sort of pulls you into someone else's life and someone else's emotions in a way that is is considered inappropriate I think often by by the profession by individual doctors and I don't I don't know why that is like I I honestly couldn't give you an answer for that but I think that's something that I very much felt is that you get taught to have a certain amount of aloofness because that is what protects the profession from being drawn into patients lives I guess like it's I'm I'm totally you know sounding this out out loud but <laughs> it's really very it I I mean I think it's very strange and I wonder if it's just something that's kind of historical and left over from the big push for professionalization in medicine which obviously is not professionalization is not like a dirty word but yeah there's just like a strange I don't know you just ha you just have a strange feeling that yeah having having a genuine emotional connection is not appropriate I I think it's um it's a weird balance because I, I remember when I used to um, work as a TA in London. So like I used to work in like one of like in like some pretty deprived areas. And like my first year of working, I found it really difficult because I was consistently taking um, the emotional baggage from work home. And after that first year I, I i don't know i had to like kind of tell myself that that it's okay to also be a little bit distance that you can show you can you can show empathy but not be too involved in the situation because i 
because I was working crazy hours. I was getting to school at before seven and some days I wouldn't leave until eight o'clock. And that, that was just because I wanted to make sure everything was perfect for the kids I was working with. But at the same time, I wasn't protecting myself like physically at all. Like I was just, I was constantly tired and I, and because I was constantly tired, I don't think I was that effective with my job at all. It's difficult to kind of like find a balance where you can still be like really empathetic and make the other person feel comfortable, but also knowing that, okay, I have left the building now um, and, and I have done everything I can within my remit as a TA or as a doctor and now it's time for me to go home and rejuvenate myself and replenish myself so I can give that so that so I can give my best the next day as well and I think this is again um, something that points to the how much all of this really is a structural and systemic problem rather than in any way a problem with individual doctors and in fact it's the opposite because most people go into a profession like medicine because they want to help people most doctors are by their nature extremely empathetic and very likely to to want to to take on other people's emotions and try and solve any distress that they come across so you're you're a kind of you're the kind of person who who is more likely to do that you're going into a profession because you want to be that person because you want to help people and then the structure kind of beats you down because it doesn't allow you to do that safely and it and it kind of sends these messages that the best way to do that is to become more and more distant which is you know a product of austerity and this kind of idea that professionalize that professionalizing the sector in order to become more efficient is the only way to do it when in fact what would be what research shows would be much much more helpful is to actually provide the kind of support that you need when you're confronted with really really difficult emotions every day which means having space and professional care psychological and physical care for doctors so that they can go away from a day and have someone who can say to them, what did that bring up for you? How are you feeling? You know, what are you dreaming about this week? Because that will speak to how, how what you're seeing in patients is impacting you psychologically. Um, and that, you know, would be a much better way of trying to strike that balance rather than expecting doctors to manage that on their own and then saying the only way to kind of get away from it is to become more distant. And in fact, the kind of balance that you're talking about, Oki, of striking that balance, being able to go home at the end of the day and rejuvenate in order to be a, a good doctor, because it is, you know, you need you need to be able to kind of uh, rest and rejuvenate and, and not be under psychological distress in order to be a good carer. And you're expected to figure out that balance on your own when in fact it should be a huge part of medical school you know, uh, teaching people how to take care of themselves while engaging with the distress of others, teaching people how to recognise what's being brought up for them in different situations and then continuing on-the-ground professional support for doctors um, rather than expecting them to do it on their own by you know, just coming up with 
strategies to be less emotionally involved? I had a really powerful experience in my, I think it was third year clinical skills and it was very out of the blue and it was not normal. What happened was my colleague was taking a history from an actor and the actor was acting as a patient with sickle cell and was in a lot of pain, was having a sickle cell crisis and was asking for medication and my colleague had to be as a medical student so they couldn't give the medication but they had to just take a history and it was quite stressful it was supposed to be one of those clinical skills um, sessions where they kind of scare you um, which is a whole other thing and my colleague my friend she started crying and she was really crying so the clinical skills tutor stopped it and she said okay we're gonna we're gonna stop um I'm genuinely by this point so not only was my friend crying almost all of the students in the room were crying and the two clinical skills tutors and the actor who was playing the patient and we were we were all women I don't know if that says something but that's like a that is a fact um and we were all crying and the tutor stopped and said okay said her name and said why why are you crying why has this upset you and my friend talked about how she was finding the story just too emotional it was too painful it was like a it was a really horrible and unjust story um and also she was finding it embarrassing because we were watching her and it was all these emotions and she said all these emotions and we all carried on crying um and it just I can't really remember how it resolved I think the tutor let her carry on finish the interview but just that release of like all of us together admitting that listening to this patient was like heartbreaking was absolutely heartbreaking even though it wasn't real because human emotions are like you can't box them into I don't know it was for me it was genuinely powerful it might have been a bit strange for the others and I probably did talk about it as if it was a funny story to my friends but actually that collective experience of we are feeling something that is not only normal but it's good and it's positive and then carrying on the consultation after to be like these emotions don't mean okay no you can't you can't interview this patient no use those emotions channel it into being an like empathetic doctor and finish it I was just I thought it was amazing yeah I think that's really interesting it makes me think about my kind of slightly more recent experience having seeing patients um and I think often when you're in a facilitated group, the person who's running the session, usually, you know, like a senior clinician or, or whatever, will say after you've taken your history or done your examination, they'll say, well, how did, how, how did that feel for you? And often you hear people saying, oh, oh, I missed this out or I didn't ask this and I uh, I didn't say this. And I usually, <laughs> usually my the first thought that comes into my mind is like, I felt sad for this patient because mm. this had happened to them or I felt angry about this patient being put into this situation yeah. or I don't know if that's just because I'm an quote unquote emotional person but I always found it quite distinctly interesting like the kind of things that people might focus on when you're asked that question mm. like how did that feel um, and I think it probably just goes back to that thing that you don't want to we kind of get taught to try not to reveal too much of ourselves um, and keep a kind of facade of professionalism. But I totally agree with what you were saying, Lucia. We we need to be thinking about how we can 
utilize those emotions in a in a productive way and protect people's well-being rather than just doing what we kind of have been doing so far which is pretending that doctors haven't got them um and we all do we've all got emotions and we've all got experiences um and i think it's really important to to acknowledge that we're going to talk a little bit more about some kind of practical things that we might be able to do as med students and junior doctors around shame and breaking down some of those barriers and the way that we might project our own shame onto patients. Um, But that's going to be right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. Okay, back to the show. So I think we've had a really, really interesting discussion so far about, I mean, these are the kind of discussions that I always love to have on Sharp Scratch. Um, They're very nebulous and don't give very many practical tips apart from, (laughs) um, you know, allowing people to, to reflect on their own experiences. But I actually came across this really, really interesting Twitter thread um, when I was planning this podcast. And it was around asking questions that we as healthcare professionals have decided are embarrassing and the way that we ask those questions and how that can put barriers up between doctors and patients and one such phrase um that I'm sure you've all come across is this phrase I just need to ask you a question that we ask everyone and Lillian Oki is that something that you it's certainly something I've been taught to use yeah 100% definitely yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I had a really amazing conversation with Dr. Chloe Beale, who is a consultant psychiatrist, um, and she told me a little bit about why she dislikes this phrase so much. Um, So we're going to hear from her. So I'm probably going to offend a lot of people who teach clinical skills to medical students, but there's this strange thing that uh, students get taught, and I don't quite know why or exactly where it comes from. But it's when they get taught to ask awkward questions, and I'm specifically thinking about um, uh, the question of suicide here. Um, And you see this all the time in uh, medical students and junior doctors. They say something like, uh, this is just a question I have to ask everyone, or uh, this is just a screening question. And I get that that comes from um, the idea that you should signpost and that uh, some people might... Uh, be freaked out by by being asked these questions um, and you want to give some kind of warning and to normalise it. 
But I think that in trying to normalise the question, we're actually giving the message that uh, the answer might be abnormal. Um, so I think that when you say this is just a question I have to ask everyone, the subtext is, well, I'm not thinking about you specifically and I'm not expecting you to say yes. And even, please, God, don't say yes. Um, and also, I, I want to move on quickly from this. Um, if you say this is just a screening question... I think that what I would hear as a patient would be, well, obviously, this isn't something that you have experienced because that would be really weird. So I'm just going to ask you the question because I have to. But of course, you're not going to say yes. So you see, I just don't think that these types of questions invite honest answers. And I think that they say far more about our own fear um, and discomfort um, as doctors than than they do about... Um, you know, sort of wanting to find out what's going on for a patient. That is um, so, so fascinating. I never thought about it in those terms before, but as, but it, it's, it makes so much sense that I, I've, I've heard that question phrased in that way so many times as a, as a patient. And, uh, I get, you know, I, I understand where it comes from in terms of signposting and, and things. But the, but because of the types of questions that it's applied to, it, it is always based on this underlying feeling that the question is an accusation. So if you, and, and that, and it goes to the comments about, you know, please God don't say yes, or, you know, I assume I don't think you're going to say yes. It, it implies that saying yes to a question like that would be some some sort of moral failure or some kind of or admitting some kind of weakness, which is why you feel we all feel the urge to, to say oh, I, to say I don't think this applies to you. I just have to ask it because it feels like asking the question would be an accusation saying that they'd failed at something rather than uh, it, it would be it would be quite normal for you to be having really dark thoughts given the situation that you're in um and and that admitting that wouldn't be admitting weakness it would make a lot of sense and it also goes back to that idea of kind of emotional mirroring and listening because if you're telling a really what is for you a very distressing story and I've been in this situation with a number of doctors and then to come to for example the question of suicide for someone to say this is a question we have to ask everyone but have you ever had suicidal thoughts it, it does feel quite jarring because you kind of want to say well you know I'm in pain every day and I have this debilitating condition and you know I've had a million surgeries and and so of, of course I've had thoughts about that you know and then that kind of takes it makes it makes you feel like the rest of your story hasn't been listened to if it feels so um out of the question that you would answer yes to a question like that um, and it's the same with sexual assault, which is what a lot of my writing is about. It's it's like, you know, if you if you preface that with this is a screening question or this is a question we ask everyone, you're implying that the person can't say yes without admitting to something that they wouldn't want to admit to otherwise. Yeah. It goes back to like the whole tick boxing thing again, that you're, you're you're just doing it because you have to rather than you're doing it because you care and then it also assumes that the answer is no and anything and any deviation from saying no is incorrect mm. and i think as well when you think about the kind of questions that you're 
you you're taught to to say that before certain types of questions and I mean firstly it, as we have discussed you know things that are shameful or embarrassing are not going to be the same for everyone but you're kind of you're blanket taught that you should say that phrase before you ask about recreational drug use before you ask a sexual history before you ask about debilitating or distressing psychiatric symptoms including suicidal thoughts and what does that say about medicine as a profession that that is those are the things that we've chosen that we think are the most shameful things it's it makes me quite angry actually because I think as well when you look at the history of medicine and medicine is you know mostly built on what mostly white, mostly male, mostly middle-class people think are acceptable, right? And who who are we as a profession to project those ideals of reasonableness and, and morals like onto our patients and onto people who we interact with whose experiences are so disparate and need to be seen as individuals? And yeah, I think... I just found it really, really interesting um, talking to Chloe, particularly having spent a long time reflecting on this. And I just thought it was a really nice, like immediately practical thing that you could do as a medical student is to stop using that phrase. And if anyone tells you that that you should use it to, to explain why you're not using it. So I guess like for me that it's made me feel a little bit like I've taken a bit of control back, like as a student who can't really do that much, but I'm never going to use that phrase again. And yeah, I, I've already, I've already told like several people um, about why they shouldn't use that phrase. And it was so nice to hear her talk about it as well, because I'd always felt like slightly weird about using it. And I'd sort of sometimes used it and sometimes not used it, um, depending on like who the examiner was and things like that. Um, <laughs> So it was nice to, I guess, be given permission to actually have my own opinion about it. Yeah, this is this whole experience has been really interesting for me, basically. Again, selfishly using the, the podcast um, as a conduit <laughs> for my own interests um, and uh, insecurities, I guess. I've got a question for Lucia. Um, so... As a patient, um, obviously, like you, you recognize the importance of signposting before tackling difficult conversations. How would you propose that we signpost um, conversations like this? So let's, for example, um, talking about suicide, how would, what, 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 what do you think would be the best way to do that? That's such a good question. Uh, and I think there could be a way to recognize because one of the things, even though shame is felt um, very personally and depends on your experience, there also is, of course, a moral constructive element to shame, which is the idea of an audience. And it's the idea that there are some things that we're taught by society that we should be ashamed of. And those are the most likely things that will trigger shame in us. Um, So I think there's a way of recognising that something falls into that category and, and signposting it without, um, as you said, okay, the, the I presuming that the answer will be no or making it clear that it will be easier for everyone if the answer is no. And maybe the way to do that is to say something like, okay, I'm going to ask you some difficult questions that, that, are, about, that are about things that 
some of us find hard to talk about, but I just want you to know you can talk about them with me or something. So it's kind of, you know, acknowledging that there's a difficulty there and that it's a sensitive subject, but encouraging the person to feel like you're a safe person to talk about it with rather than shutting down that avenue by implying that it's a kind of standard question and that you're expecting them not to engage with it. I don't know if that's a kind of... I also, again, I'm not... I am not a doctor, and so there are, could be all sorts of ethical <laughs> problems with that idea that, that wouldn't work in, in the profession. But that's just something that came to my mind. No, that was really helpful. Like, it, it, it's like a very good starting point. Like, I, th- I, think, I think the general principle is just making it clear that you understand that it's a difficult conversation and you're in a safe space to talk about it. So I guess, like, whatever words or combination of words you feel reflects that idea would be the best thing to say or do i also think that obviously as you said yes you're not a qualified clinical skills teacher or whatever but actually you are absolutely the person that i want to be learning from um i feel really passionate about that i really think you're more qualified than most clinical skills teachers not that they're not great they're amazing but there are things that actually we need people like you to tell us because you're the you're going to be the patient I don't know yeah Mm. exactly I think I mean I'm quite passionate about widening access and widening participation in in medicine and I think people automatically think about ethnicity and they think about class when when you say those words but actually I think traditionally if you look at medicine the the people who are most important that we have failed to engage and who are key key stakeholders in healthcare are the people who access um healthcare services so I think you know Lucia your your opinion is so so valued and particularly as you know an expert in terms of your research as well I don't think that there's there's probably not that many people who are more qualified than you to have an opinion um so that's really really useful I think that's kind of all we've got time for today but I have found this experience extremely cathartic I have been able to discuss some stuff with you guys that has been like bouncing around my mind for the last sort of six months and to be able to do it with you Lucia who I keep going back to your pieces because they just spoke to me so much and it wasn't something that anyone has ever addressed with me at medical school. So I'm really glad that we've been able to have this conversation and and hopefully for the people who are listening, it might be something that that they have a little bit of of a closer think about as well. So thank you so much. We usually do this sort of like wrap up at the end where we talk about our key takeaways from from the conversation and Lily what would be your like main takeaway point from what we've talked about today I know it's a bit difficult because we've talked about so many different things yeah we really we really did I think I was really moved by the idea of emotional mirroring I think that is like a resource that we have not explored enough in medicine at all and I think like we said that speaks to who who like started medicine whatever that means and who we think is qualified to decide what we do with medicine and how we teach it I think if we expand who we think is qualified then we're going to be expanding what we think a a patient 
doctor relationship should be like um yeah that's my thought okay did you have anything you wanted to add as a final thought yes i do okay so um shame is something that's really powerful and it's something that can be incredibly damaging so when we were talking about um shame in medical education and teaching like if you're if you're consistently being shamed in your teaching it's not actually helping you learn anything because you never actually fill in the gaps in your knowledge and you just feel like you're a bad doctor whereas guilt is a completely different emotion where you feel guilty about knowing something so you um kind of have the energy or i don't know what the word is to go and do that extra bit of reading rather than just feeling like you're a terrible human being for not knowing this random fact that you that was one slide in a lecture three years ago so that would be my take home and lucia was there any final thoughts you wanted to leave our listeners with i well i i mean as you all said this has just been such a an amazing conversation i feel very very lucky to be here because i don't uh, i don't get to talk to doctors very much about this kind of thing um and it's so great to hear all of your perspectives and your experiences in terms of the institutions and the culture and the teaching and i just uh, yeah it feels like a real a real privilege to be in this conversation so thank you and i think the big thing that i've taken away from all of you is that there needs to be a big focus on the way that we teach medicine and thinking about who who's setting the step, who's deciding when we ask this is just a str- screening question and when we don't and whether those things can be challenged and you know i personally i don't i don't know any doctors i don't know anyone who's in medical school so i don't have that reference point at all and i've come away from this thinking wow would it be really good to research and maybe write about the idea of medical education and what maybe should be added or should be taken away so yeah that's really really helpful for me thank you well it's been absolutely amazing having you and thank you so much Oki and Lily as well for coming along on this um sometimes I really do come out of these podcasts thinking like I have I have actually been on quite a journey in the researching and and recording of it and this has definitely been one of them so I really appreciate you guys um joining me on that and I hope that um I hope that you all and I hope the listeners as well have, have found this conversation useful in as much as it was quite tricky. Um, yeah. So that's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks time, you'll get our next episode straight to your phone. Whilst you wait, check us out on social media. We're BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag SharpScratch. It's also really helpful if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods, as it helps other med students find the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Goodbye.